The U.S. government has hit its debt limit. That's the cap on what the government is allowed to borrow to finance its spending. Since 1960, Congress has voted nearly 80 times to raise or extend the debt limit. But current negotiations in Congress have stalled with House Republicans demanding spending cuts in exchange for their votes. And because they have a slim majority, this year's fight might get rough. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says we have now begun using extraordinary measures to avoid debt default. But even those measures will run out by June if Congress doesn't fix the problem, and that might plunge the global economy into a recession. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Today we ask, how will the showdown over the debt limit end? And what does the fiscal future of our country look like? That and more after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. From hiking summits to running errands, backcountry skiing to couch surfing, Smartwool base layers are everything you need to go anywhere. They make versatile merino wool base layers that offer all-day comfort for all your adventures. They're the first layer you'll want to put on and the last layer you'll want to take off. Enjoy 15% off your first order and find the right base layer for you at smartwool.com. Let's start the conversation with our first guest. Joining us is Gina Smilik. She's the Federal Reserve and Economy Reporter at The New York Times. Hi, Gina. Hi. So I I very quickly mentioned that the debt limit is what we could spend to pay what we've already committed to pay for. Um, What does it mean if we hit that limit? Right. So the debt limit is basically how much the Treasury can borrow to pay the bills we've already incurred. And so when we hit that limit, the Treasury has a couple of options. It can stop paying back interest on the debt that we've already taken out. It can stop spending money on things like military salaries and Social Security. Or it can try and find cuts other places, national park services, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a sort of, you know, whole spate of really bad options if we hit the debt limit, which is why the goal is to not do that and to Mm. not go into a situation where we're essentially defaulting on either our debt or some of our payments. So let's bring in another voice on this from Washington, D.C. We have Leanne Caldwell. She's the co-author of the Early 202 newsletter and a live anchor at The Washington Post. Hi, Leanne. Hi. You know, the debt limit uh, seems to be one of the places in which we have bipartisan agreement, at least among economists, um, who almost entirely say that uh, breaching the debt ceiling is not a good thing. What are the what are the effects of of hitting that debt ceiling and, and maybe going over it? Economists have warned that this doesn't just have national implications, it has global implications. And that is what why people are so worried about it. Because if you hit the debt limit, what that means essentially is that the United States is no longer able to pay their credit card bills. And so that means that its lenders will no longer be paid. And that's why uh, people say that a default would be horrific for not only the United States economy, but also the global economy as well. And so you have to look at it from the perspective of this has nothing to do with future spending and what Congress is doing as far as government spending. All this is doing is enabling the United States to pay its bills and make all of the allocations that it has 
as promised from previous spending. And that's where it can get really complicated and the waters can be really muddied because it doesn't have to do with like future government spending. It has to do being able to pay for your past spending. Okay. So, Gina, this the debt ceiling in and of itself um, came around around World War I. As I and as I understand it, it was meant to actually give the Treasury more flexibility, more freedom to pay things because they expected World War I to be expensive. How did we get to this place where the debt ceiling actually ties Treasury's hands? Yeah, so it's actually been a long time coming. So we saw the first debate over, or sort of hesitance over raising the debt limit as early as in the 1950s. And those episodes were obviously problematic, but then we really got to a point where the, these arguments became very acrimonious in the late 1990s. Um, there was a, pretty popularly a government shutdown during the 1990s that was related to the debt limit arguments back then. And then the by far the worst brinkmanship we've seen over raising the debt limit came in 2011, which listeners probably remember was a pretty, you know, pretty fraught experience in which we saw a big market sell-off as a result of it. And we actually saw the government's credit rating downgraded by S&P. And so we saw, you know, some some real serious fallout by that that episode in which we got very close to breaching that, that debt limit, which we, you know, never historically have. We've never actually crossed that line into outright default. And if people don't remember, the Dow fell 2,000 points in 2011 because of this, and it actually raised borrowing costs for the U.S. by almost $19 billion over the ensuing uh, 10 years. So let me go back to you, Leanne, because while I said that economists are mostly in agreement on this, politicians are not. Um, On Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said this. If you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept raising it and they hit the limit, so you just raised it again, clean increase, and again and again, would you just keep doing that or would you change the behavior? We're six months away. Why wouldn't we sit down now and change this behavior that we would put ourselves on a a more fiscally strong position? It would make the future generation, make our nation stronger, make the economics and uh, stronger for this country. I think that's why we should sit down and I would I would welcome it's the first conversation I had with the president of winning uh, speaker the things I wanted to sit down and talk with him about. Who wants to put the nation in some type of threat at the last minute of debt ceiling? Nobody wants to do that. That's why we're asking, let's, let's change our behavior now. Let's sit down. He's the president. We're the majority in the House. The Democrats are the majority in the Senate. And let's exactly the way the founders designed Congress to work, find the compromise and find the, the common sense compromise that puts us back onto a balanced budget that I believe every household Every state does this. Every city, every county. Why would the Democrats sit back and say, just raise it with no discussion? Nobody else can do that, and I don't think the American people want that. Um, We can get into whether he's correct about what the American people want, but what exactly are our congressional Republicans asking for in exchange for their vote to raise this debt ceiling? There's so much to unpack here in what McCarthy just said. Um, I'm going to start with one thing where he says that um, 
he wants to make sure that the country is on a fiscally strong in a fiscally strong situation moving forward and that is what i was referring to before is why it gets very confusing because the debt limit has nothing to do with the future yeah. uh, there are there are absolutely conversations that will be had and should be had in Capitol Hill about government spending and how much the government wants to spend on, uh, you know, discretionary spending, on defense spending, on non-defense spending, and uh, have a conversation about entitlements as well. Those are all things that uh, this new this new House Republican majority wants to have conversations on. And that can be done and will be done through the appropriations process uh, that lasts throughout the rest of the fiscal year that ends September 30th. But what Republicans are doing is they are combining that conversation with the debt limit. Um, the debt limit, again, just needs to be raised in order to pay past spending and its obligations that the United States has already promised. And so what Gina had referenced was 1995. This was really the first time that the debt limit became so political and where Republicans decided to use the debt limit as a way to force demands and make demands on government spending. So they then combined the two. Of course, this happened when House Republicans were in the majority under a Democratic president. We saw it again in 2011, um, which was already referenced as well, when there was a Republican House under John Boehner and a Democratic president, Barack Obama. Yeah. And so that was those were the times that they have politicized the debt limit and combined the issue of government spending with lifting the debt limit. Uh, Norman emails us, allowing the debt limit to create a default would be a national disaster. Could the president declare a national emergency and then order the Treasury to Department to pay the nation's bills despite exceeding the debt limit. And I wonder, Leanne, if you can answer that question. Can uh, President Biden declare a national emergency and solve this? I've never thought about that, but I don't <laughs> think so. Um, the, you know, the Treasury Department is already um, having to take what they're calling extraordinary measures to, you know, they're holding off on some payments that they can hold off on to extend this debt limit. If the president was able to do something, he would do something. And that's why this is in Congress's hands. And we, right before the break, you were talking about the Gephardt rule, which would automatically lift the debt yeah. limit when they pass a budget. Well, what House Republicans have just done in the rules governing the House of Representatives is in fact the exact opposite. They are demanding a up or down vote on the debt limit. So uh, they have also now cleared the way for something, for making it even more complicated and trying to get around a direct increase to it. So House Republicans are creating a plan for the Treasury Department just in case uh, a, a deal to lift the debt limit is not reached. And the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, had this to say about their plan on Wednesday. This is not a plan. It is a recipe for economic catastrophe. As President Biden has made clear, Congress must deal with the debt limit and must do so without conditions. But congressional Republicans are threatening to hold the nation's full faith 
and credit, a mandate of the Constitution hostage to their demands to cut Social Security, to cut Medicare, and to cut Medicaid. Brinksmanship that threatens the global economy. Leanne, what do we know so far about this this deal, this plan from the House Republicans? Uh, I would say plan is a loosely based word, <laughs> but um, what they are going to start talking about this and what it is, is debt prioritization. And so House Republicans and even Republicans in the Senate have introduced a plan like this in the past. And I believe they just introduced a new one um, this week uh, or a bill to do this where it would lay out for Treasury the things that should be paid, the bills that should be paid if the debt limit is reached. So, um, and I say it's not quite a plan yet because House Republicans plan to discuss what they think should the Treasury Department should prioritize. So that means, you know, the author of the bill, Representative Chip Roy of Texas, uh, has said that, um, that our lenders should be prioritized. Payments to the lenders should be prioritized. And then after that, we'll see what else. Is it social security payments? Is it veterans disability payments? Is it uh, food aid? Is it, um, you know, there's a whole list of things that House Republicans plan to put in order of what the Treasury Department should pay should the debt limit be reached. So, Gina, in a letter that was released last Friday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told Kevin McCarthy that her department, Treasury, will need to take, quote, extraordinary measures uh, to prevent the United States from defaulting on its loans. What does that mean? What are these extraordinary measures? Right. Extraordinary measures are basically accounting tricks that you can enact temporarily in order to avoid, you know, breaching that debt limit immediately in order to sort of stay, just stay steady state at, at where we are and to be able to sort of, you know, issue some new debt, raise new money where you need to do do it. And so the extraordinary measures involve things like not making some reinvestments that you typically would, you know, just sort of moving pots of money around, things like that. And so they're really just sort of temporary, you know, immediate steps that the Treasury can make. And I think one thing that is often confusing about them is it's not always entirely clear how long they can last. And so Secretary Yellen said in that, that letter to Congress last week, you know, today is the day that we hit the debt limit and then extraordinary measures can last us, you know, at least until June. But that's, that at least is carrying a lot of water there. So, you know, we know that they could run out as early as early June. Most Wall Street economists are projecting sometime later in the summer, maybe August, but we won't really have a clear idea for a while and certainly not until after taxes. Uh, tax season is important, obvious to, obviously, to Bringing the government's sort of financing yeah. status. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of uncertainty surrounding these issues. So uh, Yellen's, one of Yellen's, Yellen's predecessors, former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, uh, spoke on CBS Wednesday about the looming debt ceiling. One of the things you worry about as Treasury Secretary is something happening accidentally. Revenues are a little lower than you expect. Expenditures are a little higher than you expect. Congress doesn't move so quickly. Congress always tries to figure out the last possible minute to act. And the danger is they go over that line. And they're playing with devices now that they say you can manage uh, if we hit this debt ceiling. Just to be clear, all of those devices are default of one kind or another. It's just a question of which bills you don't pay. So can you explain, Gina, 
you know, I read one uh, op-ed from an, um, an economist who said going over the debt ceiling is dangerous and potentially cataclysmic. Why is this so dangerous for the economy? What happens Right. So I actually think that this is such an interesting point because like Secretary Liu was alluding to there, there is this idea that prioritization, what we were talking about earlier, could sort of, you know, take this sting out of going over the debt limit. But, you know, I was talking to Secretary Liu last week and I've been talking to a lot of former officials from both sides of the aisles over recent days. And they're all pretty much in agreement that if you actually breach that level, if you actually get to a point where you can't pay all of the bills and you have to decide what not to pay, you could be in really, really dangerous territory. We've never done that before. There was one time we failed to pay some bills in 1979 because of a computer glitch. And that actually resulted in higher borrowing costs for America that lasted for some time. And so, you know, that that instance, which is, has been studied by the government, I think is one that can tell us something about this. Like there would be long run implications potentially from a situation that, you know, sort of hurt our reputation as a country that pays all of its bills and pays them on time and doesn't have any risk really attached to its debt, you would have to start attaching risk to the debt and that would make it much more expensive for America to fund its spending. It could imperil the dollar status in global markets. You know, there are all kinds of dangerous knock-on effects beyond just the obvious stock market sell-off and wild uncertainty that would likely result from this. We could have a lot of long-run implications from a failure to, to, to raise the debt limit. Leanne, I have to ask, how do we keep ending up here? And the context for this is that, as I mentioned, there's there's pretty uh, universal agreement among all economists, conservative and liberal, that this is a, a dangerous game to play. Um, there have been long term, as I mentioned, billions of dollars of extra costs because of these fights before. In 2013, uh, the approval ratings for the GOP fell uh, because of the debt ceiling battle. Um, 63% of Americans ended up with an unfavorable view of the party. That includes a majority of those even who support the Tea Party movement. So wh- why? Do we keep having this battle? It's an excellent question. Um, Look at, so I just do want to point out that the debt limit has been raised dozens and dozens of times. In fact, 49 times under Republican presidents and 29 times under Democratic presidents. And so this is something that has happened regardless of presidential ideological stripes. Um, It seems to be the most controversial, though, when a Democratic president is in office and Republicans control the House of Representatives when spending becomes a priority again. Um, People don't really talk about a lot of debt and deficit when there's a Republican president, but it always comes up again when there's a Democratic president. And um, the current crop of House Republicans, there's a very powerful group of fiscal conservatives who have uh, now gained power. They forced uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy to make a lot of concessions um, in order for him to win the gavel to be Speaker of the House. And part of that, most of that, is about spending. And that included in that is, that they've included in it, is the debt limit. And so it's also really interesting at this time because there was such a rise in the populist movement and among Republicans um, from the Trump years and a couple years after. But now this, like, 
Tea Party-like fiscal conservative wing of the party has really invoked their power again. And so they think that this is the best way to rein in government spending. And a lot of times they don't care about the political consequences. They are in very safe Republican seats. And they think that this is a political winner for them. They are acting on principle, they say. And... um But there's a lot of other members of Congress who disagree that this is just damaging to the United States and to the global economy. Eduardo asks on Twitter, why have a debt limit? Why not just do away with it? The budgeting process is what controls what the government can spend. And we got this message from Catherine in Florida. I think it's an artificial construct which furthers the political agenda of certain groups within the Congress. Also, we have a very radical group no holes barred, my way or the highway, small group that will try to hold us hostage in order to get concessions. And this is going to be extremely damaging to us both internally and externally. Do you know what your response to that? Yeah, you know, actually, I think this is a, a sort of set of questions that you increasingly hear from a lot of a lot of people, particularly on the left. It's just that this is an artificial construct. We shouldn't have it. We should just get rid of the debt limit. Um, and, you know, the budgeting process should be the budgeting process, and that should be the end of the day. I do think that there is not a lot of political appetite for doing away with, with the debt limit. You know, they, you will regularly get um, get constitutional lawyers and other sort of big thinkers talking about how the White House could unilaterally abolish this. You know, they could use the 14th Amendment to declare the debt ceiling unconstitutional, for example, is is something that you'll often hear in this context. And it seems like there's just really no appetite for doing something like that. And so Mm. at at the moment, at least, it seems like we are destined to continue having this fight. Um, And so, you know, construct or not, this this is the way it works here in America. And the 14th Amendment is what obligates Congress to pay the government's debts. We'll say goodbye for now and thank you to Gina and Leanne. But we have lots more to talk about with two new guests right after the break. Stay with us. Let's get back to the conversation by hearing from two new voices. Natasha Sarin is an economist and associate professor of law at Yale Law School. She's also the former deputy assistant secretary for economic policy and a former counselor to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen at the U.S. Treasury Department. Natasha, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks for having me. And we have Michael Strain. He's the director of economic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative public policy think tank. Michael, it's great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, Natasha, there's a constant misconception and confusion um, over the debt limit breach and the government shutdown. Um, Does a debt limit breach automatically mean shutting down the government? No, it doesn't. And those are distinct concepts. But I don't want that distinction to kind of understate the importance of what a debt limit breach would mean. And you, Leanne and Gina, were already speaking to it, but it's like a pretty important thing for us to understand. The United States has always paid our bills on time. That is a core American value. It is what makes us a serious and credible nation in the eyes of the world. As a result of us being closer than we've been at any time in the last decade to potentially 
breaching our debts, you're already starting to see cracks in that credibility. You have Goldman saying the risks of a default this year are greater than they've been at any time in the last decade. And this is incredibly risky, dangerous, and damaging. Potentially, it's damaging to American households. It's damaging to the global economy. And I think it begs an important question for us all to consider, which is why. Why this particular circus? Why this particular moment? as a desire in a world of uncertainty, in a world of tremendous risks, to potentially bring us to the precipice seems incredibly dangerous by House Republicans. And let's listen to some voicemails that came in from our listeners. Hi, my name is Robin. I'm calling from Salt Lake City, Utah. My name is Jimmy from Atlanta. My name is Wade from Chelsea, Michigan. It seems like to me it's we could cut back a little on our worldwide assistance. There comes a time when you have to say... We have to make sure our own house is in order financially before we can start helping others that way. We have many areas that we overspend, in my opinion, as it comes to defense, maybe even aid to other countries. But we have to get our financial house in order, and that's the bottom line. We just cannot continue to raise the limit on that debt ceiling. I think this uh, debt that we're incurring is uh, immoral, and I understand the Republicans are going to be painted in the corner, but the reality is that's their only leverage. And so I support their being a little more uh, headstrong and pugnacious about this. Thank you to Robin, Jimmy, and Wade for those messages. And we heard something similar similar in an email from Cynthia who says, our Congress is spending with abandon on its proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, along with other military spending. Cut the military, spend the money on the needs of our people. Military spending is so extravagant, but cutting seems to be off the table. Michael, let me put this to you because the debate our listeners are having there seems to me probably better had during the the budget debate uh, when they decide what they're going to spend rather than whether they'll pay for what they spent. Uh, To what extent, though, is overspending uh, at fault for these uh, repeated debt ceiling battles? Uh, Well, I I, I think you've really uh, touched on the key issue um, in the question. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about uh, about the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling does not authorize new spending. The debt ceiling allows the federal government to pay for spending that Congress has already authorized. And so it may be that we're spending too much on the military. It may be that we're spending too much on safety debt programs. It may be that we're spending too much on retirement programs. Uh, or it may be that we're spending too little on all those things. Whether we're spending too much or too little is really beside the point in the debt ceiling debate. The debt ceiling debate is about whether the United States government will honor its financial obligations and financial commitments and whether the federal government will be able to execute the spending that Congress has already authorized and that the government is required by law to spend. If the government can't pay Social Security checks or, or pay foreign aid or pay uh, interest on existing bonds, then the, the government is uh, – uh, the Treasury Department would be um, violating the law, which is uh, – the law which, which, which prescribes uh, uh, those, um, those, those spending amounts. So and some of our listeners also want to talk about taxes. Uh, John emails, the congressional Republicans are right. Deficit spending must be reduced. The way to do this is to restore the taxes on the wealthy that were reduced 
by Republican administrations under Bush and Trump. And Dorothea says capitalism has run amok thanks in large part to Republicans who don't want to make corporations and wealthy individuals pay their fair share. Perhaps with higher taxes and responsible spending, the debt ceiling could even be lowered. And to be clear, the debt ceiling isn't necessarily involved in taxes except that revenue helps us pay our, our, our bills. But Natasha, can you explain how tax policy uh, is related to the debt limit crises? I actually think that's a very interesting point that your listeners are making. And it highlights what I've been watching over the course of the next weeks, which strikes me as just like an internal inconsistency in the way that House Republicans are thinking about policy right now. There's a lot of talk about deficits and debts and fiscal responsibility. If that is the concern, I have a tool and your listeners have a tool. Today, we failed to collect $600 billion of taxes that are owed to the U.S. government disproportionately by the very top, by wealthy tax evaders who aren't paying their fair share the way people who earn salaries automatically are each and every year. If you are really concerned about having enough revenues coming into the government to meet our spending obligations, then fixing that problem, addressing the fact that there are just uncollected taxes, you don't have to change any laws, uncollected taxes that are sitting on the table seems to be first order. But the first thing that House Republicans did when they took power in this Congress wasn't to try to make progress on that incredibly important goal. It was actually the reverse. It was to pass legislation in the House that would defund the IRS and make it harder for wealth for us to collect revenue from wealthy tax evaders who today aren't paying their fair share. That was scored by the Congressional Budget Office, rightfully, as increasing, adding to our deficits and adding to the problem that they claim to be trying to address. So on the one hand, you have deficit increasing legislation. On the other hand, you claim to be focused on debts and deficits. I don't think that's consistent. And I think that's something the American people will very clearly be able to see through. And Michael, let me go to you. We got this message from Debbie in Michigan. I think that we do need to try and look for ways to budget, but I don't think this is the time or the place to make a major standoff. They should just get together and get things done. It's time to stop fighting. Michael, what's your response to that? Well, I, I think that, uh, that the caller is right, that raising the debt ceiling should be uh, routine. It shouldn't be an event. It shouldn't be something we're talking about. Uh, uh, Congress has already authorized the spending uh, that the Treasury is required by law to, to uh, execute. Um, Congress has already set tax rates uh, that implicitly determine revenue. Congress has also, uh, to Natasha's point, already uh, uh, allocated resources for tax collection. I agree with Natasha, those resources are inadequate, uh, but that is that is also uh, the law of the land, and that also uh, implicitly sets revenues. And because spending outpaces revenues, Treasury needs to borrow. And that's a direct consequence of decisions that Congress has already made. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, uh, Congress should, should raise the debt ceiling and it shouldn't be something that, that we're talking about or fighting about. I, you know, I do think that um, 
we should be giving more money to the IRS, as Natasha uh, suggests. I also think that we really need to be looking at ways to reduce spending on Medicare, ways to reduce spending on Social Security. Uh, and so I agree with the caller that um, Congress should come together and look at how to reduce the deficit, how to increase revenue responsibly, how to cut spending responsibly. But that should happen separate and apart from any debate over raising the debt ceiling. And just as a point of context, the United States spends twice as much on health care, Medicare, Medicaid, than uh, comparable countries on, on that particular issue. But I wonder, Natasha, about other costs as well. How do these these stalls, these extraordinary measures, these fights, how do you think – what effect do you think that has on public faith in government and public faith especially in the Treasury Department? I think it has a really substantial impact. I mean, what you're citing is – previous debt limit impasses that have caused real harm, right? We experienced our only credit rating downgrade in the history of our nation in 2011. That had a very sizable impact on borrowing costs for households. It had an impact on the business that corporations are able to do and the ways in which they're able to secure funds in this country. But it's so much more than that. The United States is the bedrock of the global financial system. It is really the, this country is a country that is serious and that is credible and that is trusted in the world because it is a country that has and always has and God willing always will make good on its commitments and its obligations. At a moment of substantial risk and uncertainty that you can't really control, this was a point Gita Gopinath from the IMF made yesterday, it seems kind of insane to be adding to that risk and uncertainty and to be threatening our credibility in the world. The world is watching. And to be threatening our credibility by taking measures that bring us to the precipice of potentially breaching our capacity to meet our obligations. And the extraordinary measures shouldn't make you especially nervous relative to where you were a week ago, but they should sort of indicate to you and to your listeners that we're essentially living on borrowed time. And like, this is a moment where literally 80 times since 1960, both parties in Congress have found ways to try and successfully address this particular challenge, which ultimately is Congress's responsibility to address. So my ardent hope is that's what you're going to see over the next course of the next few months. But I do think it is going to be more challenging this time than it has been in recent history because of the particular political dynamics that are really unfortunate. Well, we'll have to leave it there for today, but I want to thank Natasha Sarin, an economist and the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department. Thanks so much for being with us. And thank you to Michael Strain. He's the Director of Economic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative public policy think tank. Today's show was produced by Lauren Hamilton and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.